If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. In a moment, I'm going to begin reading at verse 17. And I will tell you that traditionally, this is a text that we look at to discern the duties of officers in the church. And I will confess to you, that's the reason I planned to preach on it today. And we scheduled to talk about it today. But I also want you to know that as I was studying this text, and as I've been praying recently more and more for the unity of our church and that we would live out the truths of the gospel well in gospel community, this text gave me such a great vision of what life in the church could be like. It's such a beautiful picture of rich community that is available to us as followers of Jesus And the bonds that we can have with other people who are also followers of Jesus and on this same journey with us. So if you hear this morning and you would not consider yourself to be a follower of Jesus, I first want to say I'm glad you're here. And I hope you always feel welcome here at Redeemer Church. But secondly, I would say in light of what I've just said that this text could give you a great picture of what it would be like to live in a community with people who are followers of Jesus. And I will tell you, I've been praying that it would whet your appetite for that, that you would have a desire for it when you see the beauty of what it could look like. If you're here this morning and you're looking for a church home, this text describes the biblical community that existed at one church in Ephesus that we long and aspire to be like. And it gives you an idea of the type of community you may be looking for in a church home. If you're here this morning and you're looking to make this church more biblical in the way that we live and move and have our being, wow, this is a great picture for us. And if you don't care about any of those things, you just want to learn to walk with Jesus more closely, you want to grow and improve and become more the person that he wants you to be, this text gives you some clear pictures of how that can happen. So before I read this text, I want to tell you a few things to put it into context. And then I'm going to read a pretty big passage here, 17 to the end of the chapter. And I want you to be listening for those things that we talk about. But to set the context, Paul is going to be giving address an address here. The apostle Paul does. And he's talking to the Ephesian elders, the leaders from the church in Ephesus. And you need to know that Paul planted this church. And he appointed these elders. And he lived there in Ephesus with them and ministered with them for three years, longer than he stayed in other places where he planted churches. And as a result, these people are very dear to him. And he is dear to them. When I begin and say from Miletus, Paul sends for them, that means they have to travel a day and a half to get to where he is. And then a day and a half back. So they are interrupted. There's an inconvenience to their schedule for at least three days that he couldn't call ahead and say was coming. Plus whatever time they spent with him. So you need to know that distance. And you need to know that Paul here is on his way to Jerusalem. And he has a sense that, that this is the end for him. He is the end of his ministry. Indeed, the end of his life. He'll be arrested in Jerusalem, he will appeal to Caesar, and he will be executed in Rome. This is the last time he will see these folks. And so, as he addresses people who are so near and dear to his heart, knowing this is the last time he will talk with them, it invests these words with great importance. So listen to them in that context as I read Acts chapter 20, beginning in verse 17. Hear now God's word. 
from Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. When they arrived, he said to them, You know how I lived the whole time I was with you. From the first day I came into the province of Asia, I served the Lord with great humility and with tears, although I was severely tested by the plots of the Jews. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus." And now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life not worth nothing to me if only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace." Now I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood." I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. Now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified." I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. In everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak, remembering the words the Lord Jesus himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. When he had said this, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. They all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. What grieved them most was his statement that they would never see his face again. Then they accompanied him to the ship. Don't stop reading. Look at the first verse of 21. After we had torn ourselves away from them, we put out to sea. Do you feel the bonds that are there? The community that's developed in this place, these men with hugs and with kisses and with tears, having to tear themselves away from each other. The, The word is used of amputations. It's like a part of themselves is having to be cut away, that they are losing a part of themselves. There's such rich community. There's such rich bonds that exist here. And as I studied this week, I just asked the question, you know, don't you want friends like that? Don't you want community like that? Wouldn't you love to be a part of a church that was like this? Oh, I do, I do. And so I want us to look at this text and I want us to see how is it 
that they had a church like this? How did they have community like that in this Ephesian church? What did they do that produced it? Because, boy, I want, I want us to be like this. And there are a lot of things they did. You could read the whole book of Ephesians, which I'll refer to. There are a lot of things in this text, a lot of details I'm not going to get to, which is hard for me, as you know. But if you have questions, ask me later. But there are at least two things I want us to focus on this morning. The first thing that they obviously did is they learned truth together. And secondly, they lived life together. They learned truth together and they lived life together. So let's talk about those two things. First, they learned truth together, right? This is, it jumps off the page at you in verse 20, what Paul said that he did there, that he preached and he was teaching and he did it publicly and from house to house and that he would declare to all people, Jews and Greeks, that they had to turn to God in repentance and have faith in the Lord Jesus, he says at, in, at the end of verse 24 that his task was testifying to the gospel or the good news of God's grace. He says in verse 26 that he declared that he's innocent of all men's blood because he has proclaimed the kingdom and the whole counsel of God to them. Uh, he tells them to be shepherds and to watch themselves because look what he says in verse 21. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the what? Truth. They were concerned about the truth. And they had learned the truth together. And so then he tells them, so be on your guard about the truth. They learned truth together. And this community was formed as they learned this truth together. Now, I want to ask a couple of questions about that, because there are a lot of places that you can go and learn things that are true that don't bind us together, right? The Internet, Google, the news. How does learning truth together lead to community? I'm going to ask that question first. How does learning truth together lead to community? And then how does the Bible show us that we are to learn this truth that leads to community, right? How does it happen? How does learning together lead to community? And then how is it that we're supposed to learn that leads to this community? So let's look at those two things. First, how does learning truth together lead to community? Paul talks about this when he writes a letter to this Ephesian church. He's there for three years. He planted it. Then he goes and begins to plant other churches. And he writes a letter to that church that we know as the book of Ephesians. He's probably in jail in Philippi when he writes the letter to the Ephesians. And if you read in Ephesians chapter 1 and 2 and 3, Paul talks a lot about them being one person. There not being any division amongst them. In fact, he writes... That the Lord Jesus in his death, burial, and resurrection, that he not only destroyed the barrier between people and God, so that we could come, sinful people could become, come before a holy God. So God is our father, but we can have a relationship with one another as brothers and sisters. No doubt he's reminding them of things that they had learned when they were together. And then when you get to the beginning of Ephesians chapter 4, Paul tells how learning together in community leads to this kind of community, leads to these bonds. Because he says in Ephesians 4 that all those who are followers of Jesus have one spirit. And that that one spirit makes us one body. That we're one body that have one and the same spirit. That we all have one and the same faith in one and the same Lord Jesus that we've all received one and the same baptism, that we have one and the same God and Father who is over all and through all and in all. 
And so he says, in that way, because we have the same spirit in us that produces the same faith and the same Lord, and we receive the same baptism, we have the same Father, then learning those truths creates these bonds, that we're one body because of that. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Four Loves, describes this well. His chapter on friendship is excellent. I've quoted to you from it before. If you haven't read it, I would encourage you to do so. I gave that assignment to some people in my household this week. You need to read this. He's such a good writer, and the truths are so good. Listen to what he says about how bonds are formed over truth. He writes, friendship arises out of mere companionship when two or more of the companions discover that they have in common some insight or interest or even taste which the others do not share and which until that moment each believed to be his own unique treasure or burden. The typical expression of opening friendship would be something like, what, you two? I thought I was the only one. In this kind of love, as Emerson said, do you love me means Do you see the same truth? That is why those pathetic people who simply want friends can never make any. The very condition of having friends is that we should want something else besides friends. Where the truthful answer to the question, do you see the same truth, would be, I see nothing and I don't care about the truth, I only want a friend, no friendship can arise. There would be nothing for the friendship to be about. And friendship must be about something, even if we're only an enthusiasm for dominoes or white mice. Those who are going nowhere can have no fellow travelers. You hear what Lewis is saying there? He's saying that these bonds form when we see and value the same truth. And when we bend the knee to that, We begin to say, oh my goodness, you value that too? And then there's a bond between us. He talks about lovers being face-to-face in their relationship, but friends being shoulder-to-shoulder as they look at the same thing and behold it and treasure it together. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great Anglican preacher, illustrated this point well. If you don't know his story, he was a medical doctor. He was the to the royal physician he had advanced in his career and for some reason he left that but to become a minister of the gospel I'm not sure why anyone would do that but evidently god calls people to do that sort of thing from time to time but he stepped down and he was sent to this welsh fishing village very small village and he writes that he was so encouraged and even confirmed in his own faith because he would go and he would visit these these widows of fishermen who were much older than him, obviously a different sex than him, a different socioeconomic class than him, a different background. They were largely uneducated, largely illiterate, but he would sit with these widows and have this bond with them because they were a follower of Jesus and it was the most important thing to them. And he was a follower of Jesus and it was the most important thing to him. And he writes and is fascinated by this, that he has this bond with these widows that he's visiting that he didn't feel with people of the same race, the same social class, and the same culture. And it was because even though he shared many things in common with those other folks, he didn't share the most important thing. I wonder... 
Have you ever been friends with somebody that you had absolutely nothing in common with except Jesus? That he was the most important thing to both of you? And even though you didn't have any, absolutely nothing in common, you shared this bond. Of that. Have you ever felt that? That's what Lloyd-Jones is describing. I dream of Redeemer Church being a place where people of different races, different ages, different genders, different socioeconomic backgrounds, different family backgrounds from different places have a bond like these people in Acts. And like Lewis describes, and like Lloyd-Jones experienced. And it comes not because we all believe the same things about everything there is to have an opinion about, but it comes because we believe the same thing about the most important thing. And for us here at Redeemer, I want you to know what that most important thing is. We have a bond over the fact that, number one, we all agree that we are sinners, that we fall short of the grace of God, and that we have no hope in this world or in the world to come except because of his mercy and his grace that he extends to us. And we have a bond over the fact that we believe that Jesus Christ is the Savior of sinners and that he is the only hope for sinners and that by his perfect death, by his perfect life and death and resurrection, that he lived the life that we should have lived, that he died the death that we should have died so that we could be made right with God and with one another. We share the common conviction here that we endeavor to live our lives as followers of Jesus. And we are committed to seeing that happen, that his image would be formed in us. That, that is the core of who we are. And as we talk about that and celebrate that and, and attempt to live that out, live like that's true in all areas of life, there is a bond that comes to this community that I am praying for, that I am longing for, that I hope you do too. So how does that happen? That's how truth leads to community. How do we take in this truth in a way that it builds that community? Paul gives us a picture of it here. You see, in, in verse 20, they put themselves under preaching and teaching, but they did it a, a certain way. Remember, what does he say there in verse 20? He says he taught them, he was preaching publicly like I'm doing now. That's an important first step, hearing the truth, sitting under it together. But then he says what? That he taught them from house to house. That's important. Listen, if we want to have the kind of community that these people have, that I've been describing, listen to me, it is not enough to come here once a week and hear the word preached, even as fabulous as the sermons are, right? Even though you're so moved by them and you take copious notes, coming here once a week is not enough to have this sort of community. We also must gather in smaller groups in each other's homes. And that's the way the truth moves from our head down to our hearts and into our lives. It's as I sit with a group and I'm just picking the winkles or sitting, as I sit with the winkles and they talk about how the truth has influenced them and how it's changing the way they live, I think, man, it needs to change my life like that. And as I hear them repent and turn from other things to a greater trust in Jesus, I, I think, well, that's a way that I can repent too. That's the way I need to more fully trust in Jesus with my children, in my job, 
right? In my community. And that house to house together is a way that the, the truth changes us and leads to a bond in a kind of community that you can't get meeting publicly once a week. We have opportunities for that here at Redeemer Church. We have community groups that will meet tonight. Some of them in homes, some of them here at the church. We have discipleship groups. So C groups, community groups, D groups, discipleship groups. Community groups are bigger, up to about 15 people. It's co-ed. You discuss the sermon, pray for one another. You begin this process. D groups are a little more intense. They're smaller, five people or less. They're same-sex groups. You can't really hide in the group as well because there aren't as many of them. There's a little more accountability. It's a little more intense. But we offer those things because once a week publicly is not enough to have the kind of community that they talk about here. But there's a third thing I see here in the text that makes a difference in forming these bonds of community. Did you see it? The the third thing, there's publicly. The second thing, house to house, teaching privately. But third, I see that this happens through shepherding by elders and overseers and shepherds. I wondered if he was going to get around to that on the day that they're ordaining and installing officers. Yeah, here it is, right? It's a way that God's people grow. It's a way that we take in truth. It's a way that we have bonds in our community. You see that, verse 17, I want you to see that he calls in verse 17, Paul sends to Ephesus for the elders of the church. Elder is the word presbyteroi. It's the word that we get Presbyterian from because we're ruled by elders. And the idea came from the Jewish synagogue. These are elders. There are people who are a little further down the road than we are so they can help us in our faith as we grow and learn what is true and how to live like God calls us to live. You see, when, he, when they, these people get there, he tells them to keep watch over yourselves and the flock that the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. He calls the same group elders, and then he calls them overseers. Why is he emphasizing that? Because it's the word episcopoi that we get episcopal from. Sometimes you see it translated bishops. And there are churches that have bishops that, preside, that oversee the work of the church. But these men in the scripture are not overseeing work in the church. They are overseeing the souls of men and women. And they're the same people as the elders. Overseers, bishops, elders are used interchangeably in scripture. Or look at the next one. Be shepherds of the church of God. Shepherd is the word we get our word pastor from. And so these folks are supposed to oversee people's souls. They lead them in the way. As shepherds, they lead, they guide, they direct. They feed the truth, right? They protect from error, which Paul's referred to here in the text. And so we get an idea of what these folks should do. Now listen, I don't know what you think when you hear me talk about this, being led by shepherds and elders. I know that there are some people who have been burned by the church, And you've heard about abuse in the church. And you're not too excited when I start talking about, hey, there's some elders, there's some overseers, there's some shepherds that want to get all up in your business and talk to you about what's going on in your life. I understand that. That's kind of weird. There aren't a lot of churches that do that. But if that's where you are, if that's what you feel, if you don't think that, listen, you know somebody who does, I can promise you. So you need to listen to these things. But if you're feeling that way, I want you to consider a couple of things from the text. First, notice what he says about these overseers. In verse 20, he says, Keep watch of yourselves and the flock over which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. 
That's really important. Because we often come to God and we pray, oh Lord, help me grow. And then we live our lives and say, Lord Jesus, I just want it to be you and me. Can you just help me to walk in your ways? And the Lord Jesus, the great shepherd, through his Holy Spirit, raises up shepherds in the church and say, these shepherds are to lead you under me on my behalf. This is the method that God has raised up to help us grow. Yet we refuse to submit that to that kind of a method for a lot of reasons. We is not perfect. And you know why? It's not God's fault. It's because the officers of the church are imperfect people. And I just want to let you know right now, we will disappoint you. We will let you down. We are not going to do this perfectly. Back to our core convictions. We're sinners saved by the grace. Our only hope is in the mercy of God, right? So we're not going to do this perfectly. But it is God's method. Notice there's some checks in here. He tells them, keep watch, not just over the flock. He says, keep watch over yourselves and the flock. The Bible's not foolish. Paul knows with the potential for danger here. In fact, later he says there will be some from your own number that will rise up and distort the truth and lead people away. The Bible is very honest about this. It's not like that's a surprise. Oh my gosh, the officers are bad and so this isn't working. The Bible's not surprised by that. But the way it's supposed to work is that these men are supposed to keep watch over themselves. And in order for that to happen, there has to be more than one elder or, or, or there has to be more, one, more than one overseer. There has to be more than one shepherd. And that's the way we've tried to set ourselves up. That there's not just one elder or shepherd. That we've set things up so there's a plurality of elders here there is a team made up of men with different gifts and abilities and we keep watch over ourselves on the flock and we are working hard to hold one another accountable and if that group of people let you down which can happen and they make a decision that you think is wrong in our form of government there's a place to appeal to it's, it's a presbytery. It's the biblical pattern in Acts 15 where Paul and Barnabas had a dispute in the church in Antioch. So they went to the elders in Jerusalem to have them settle the dispute. And we have that kind of set up as a church government. I see Randall Yelverton and I are actually members of the presbytery, not even members of this church. And the presbytery has authority over the elders here to enforce things and to hold us accountable. And there's even a general assembly level above that. But, you know, it's not really the presbytery that I worry about. <laughs> That's not the biggest thing that checks my heart. You know what the biggest thing that I feel like holds me in check is? It's this verse you're going to hear later in the service from Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 17. You're going to hear Paul von Herman read it as a charge to the congregation. But I want you to know elders hear that too. And what it says is that these men, these leaders in the church who are appointed to shepherd your souls have to give an account to God for the way that we shepherd in the church. Now, I don't know about you, but that makes me check my heart. That makes me say, oh, Lord, please watch over what I'm doing. Please govern what I'm doing. And I think the other leaders here take that verse seriously. As well, Here's my point. 
My point is that anytime we're growing up and need to learn truth or need to learn community or need, or need guidance, God gives us people in authority over us to help us do that. When we're kids, we have parents or legal guardians. Some of them are better than others, but they teach us the way to go and they help us learn to, to live life in the world. It happens if you are an organized sport. You have a coach that has authority over you and helps you to improve and to get better. At work, you have a boss who oversees your work and holds you accountable for what you do. In school, you have teachers who have authority over you, who teach you and help us learn the things that we need to learn. Physically, if I want to see physical improvement, I can go to a physical trainer. And they say, okay, here's where you're falling short. These are the exercises that you need to do. Yet when it comes to our spiritual well-being... We say, I don't want to have anybody in authority over me. It's just going to be Jesus and me, and I'm going to go with this alone. It's not the biblical pattern. And it's not the pattern you followed for probably your entire life. So let me ask you, are you putting yourself in a place to be led by shepherds? If they call you or contact you and want to get together for lunch or for breakfast, accept their invitation because it's showing that they care about your soul and that they want to see you live life the way God designed it to be lived. Let me talk just for a moment about their living life together. I've already covered this a good bit because it's hard to talk about their learning truth together without sort of bleeding into they lived life together. Because if they're publicly and, 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 and privately house to house and with shepherds close up in their lives, those, those bonds are already forming, right? They're already living in community together. But let me just make a few points I see about they lived life together in the text. What do I mean when I say that? Well, verse 17, they come from Miletus. I've already said that it had to be a huge inconvenience for a messenger to show up and say, hey, Paul wants to see you. And I know to see he's in Miletus, it's going to be at least three days for me to go there and come back. Probably wasn't on my schedule of things to do. Sometimes living life together is inconvenient. <laughs> and it's not what you had scheduled. Man, I feel you. That happens all the time. And I still get mad that it does. We should just come to expect it. But living life together means there may be some inconvenience for us. Look what Paul says in the next verse in verse 18. When they arrived, he said to them, you know how I lived the whole time I was with you from the first day I came into the province of Asia. The, the, the English there doesn't convey the, the gravity of how he lived the whole time he was with them. It's a heavier sense than just the phrase with you in the English. I, I think it echoes Mark 3 and verse 14 where we're told that Jesus appointed 12 and designated them apostles that they might be with him. It carries the sense of all parts of our life are visible. You know, you know that's why meeting once a week and just hearing the truth publicly doesn't build these bonds, Right? Because here at church, we show each other what we want the other people to see, right? I dress up, I look nice, get a haircut, pocket square. Show folks what we want them to see. 
Social media, certainly. You think you know somebody because you follow them online? Well, we really only show people the things that we want to see. This word's talking about all parts of our life are visible. Paul made all parts of his life visible to these people, publicly, house to house. In verse 35, he's saying, you know how I worked. They saw what he was like at work. Look what he says in verse 19. He says, I served the Lord with great humility and with tears, although I was severely tested by the plots of the Jews. He allowed them to see his struggles, his humility, his tears. He allowed them to see the plots against him. They saw all these things in his life. And of course, that begs the question for us. Listen, I don't think everybody has to know everything about you. I'm not sure that's possible in a group this size. But it begs the question, are there people you let into your life? Is there someone you allow to see all the parts of your life? Because that's the only way we can have real, authentic community is if we begin to let one another in. I have one more point about this that I feel very strongly about. So if I've lost you, come back. It's kind of a summary point, right? They lived life together, and they learned truth together. And here's what I feel strongly about, that you have to have both of those things together, okay? We have to learn, to, we have to learn truth together, and we have to live life together. You can't just do one or the other. I think you have to do both. We have to have those bonds that come from the things we've talked about being the most important things, learning that truth together. And then we also have to be honest with one another that we don't have it all together. And I'm convinced that you've got to have both of those things. If we're here in a church and we don't stand for truth, right? We don't really stand for anything at all. And we just come here together and share our lives and that we're a mess with one another. What good is that? How does that help me, right? If there's not that common bond of what is true, if there's not that common journey of I'm becoming more like Jesus, if there's not that common truth that I'm a sinner and I know I need to be more like Jesus, if there's not that common truth, why come together and share our mess? Your mess just creates more for me and I got enough of my own. I don't need yours, right? So there has to be some element of truth. It's not just sharing our lives and our mess together. Oh, but oh, watch this one, though. The other way is true, too. And I think this is what we probably struggle with more. Yes, we stand for truth in this generation, and we stand for those, and we are unwaveringly committed to the truth. But we don't want to let people into our lives and know what a mess we are. And you know what that does? It only leads one of two places. It either leads to some type of apprehensive bashfulness or if it leads to an arrogant boastfulness. What do I mean by that? Well, we get apprehensive and bashful if we stand for truth, but we know we don't meet it, and you know you don't meet it, but we don't talk about that, and so we just kind of wink and grin at each other and say, look, I won't call you out on yours if you don't call me out on mine. And we just have this truth that we espouse and that we articulate that doesn't really make a difference in our lives. And I'll be honest with you, it's, it, it's sickening to the Lord Jesus. Read in Revelation 2, he says about this church in Ephesus, you've lost your first love. Which is that love for the truth that we have and that bond for each other. 
But the other one, wow. We can also get arrogant and boastful, right? We stare for the truth. And if I'm not honest with myself, I'm not willing to admit that I don't have it all together. And so what it leads to is, here's the truth. We have the truth. We've got it together. Why can't you get your act together? Maybe you've been places like that, that that was sort of the vibe. We've got the truth. We know how things are supposed to go, and we're doing it. Why can't you do it? See, both of these things have to be true. Such that when people look at us, and we're honest, that yes, these things are true, and we stand for them. But we also don't have it all together, and we fall short then people can begin to look at this community and say, wow, they believe in something, they stand for something. But when I have doubts about what they stand for, it doesn't crush me. Because they admit that the only reason they are where they are is because of the grace and mercy of God. And people can look at us and say, wow, they take really strong stands on things. But they admit that they don't have it all together and they don't have it all figured out in the details. And, and so I can open up and share about the things that I fall short and know that I'm not going to get hammered. Because these people have grace. They have grace and truth. I think it says something about that in Scripture. Oh, that we would be that kind of a community that is willing to Extend the grace that we have received from the Lord Jesus himself. Let's pray and ask God to make this that kind of a community. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, (laughs) we can't do any of this on our own. Left to our own devices, we either compromise the truth and run on it so that we can all get along with some type of false peace and false community. Or, Father, we have a tendency to stand for truth and to be mean to one another and to ignore how it should apply to our lives. Father, I just ask you publicly, as I've asked you privately, please make this a place where we learn together and we stand for truth together, but we also live life together and are willing to to show our flaws and how we fall short and that we would repeatedly talk about how We need you and your grace. And that our only hope is your extending grace and mercy to us so that other people would find that same hope in you that we found in you. Make us that kind of a church, for it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.